Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Rory Cooper. Dr. Cooper is the FISA PVA Endowed Chair and Distinguished Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Science and Technology of the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Cooper, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be back. You have a lot of initiatives, and I think in terms of maybe picking a few highlights, I saw an article that involved your work some time ago that talked about breakthroughs within reach, and I know you have a lot of initiatives that are on the cusp of meeting that criteria. Perhaps you can select a few highlights and share them with us and our audience. Thank you. We do have a number of projects that are going on. I think what's interesting is since we last talked that a lot of our work has shifted towards assistive robotics in sort of the broadest sense, as well as uh, technology to help translate our research findings into better clinical practice. So we've been working on robots to help with transfers, robots to help with cleaning and meal preparation, improving wheelchair mobility through using robotics technology. And we've also been working on some virtual coaching using wearable computing to create apps to help both people with disabilities and clinicians better use our research findings in everyday life. That sounds fascinating. I'm sure we could spend the whole podcast on any one of those, but in terms of the area of robotics, I assume that one of the critical items is sensors and feedback. Is that a correct presumption? Yes, well, any robotics. I mean, it's really about sensors, feedback, actuators, power sources, and human-machine interfaces. I mean, one of the challenging things for us, and, and certainly where sensors play an important role, is trying to have robots work not only in close proximity to people, but literally hand-in-hand, touching people and doing things together, whereas the traditional robotics work has, by and large, focused on working in dirty, dangerous, and remote environments where we're actually trying to have robots help with things such as dressing, driving, transfers, and other meal preparation, eating, and other intimate activities of daily living. That requires an entirely different perspective on robotics, more reliance on sensors, on safety software, and understanding how people and robots would like to interact, at least how people would like to interact with robots, and how best people and robots can interact with each other. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned software safety because I know that's one of the issues with any robotic application in terms of, as you point out, the interface with people. It's even more important in that regard, I'm sure. So let's pick a couple of the examples that you uh, shared, and maybe let's begin with the wheelchairs. I've seen some graphics of some of the new wheelchair technology that you're involved in. Can you give us a brief synopsis? Sure. I'd like to talk probably about three different projects that we're doing that would be of interest, I think, to the listeners. Let's start with the wheelchair. I think our currently most exciting projects is 
the MiBot, which is the Mobility Enhancement Robotic Wheelchair. And the idea behind the MiBot is to create a powered mobility device that can go seamlessly to almost anywhere everybody can go that doesn't have a wheelchair. So walking across a park trail, jaywalking, so you can go down a curb and up a curb to cross the street at will, self-leveling so you can cross driveways and curb cuts with minimal or no risk of tipping, and even go over the icy sidewalks in wet grass. That is one of our exciting projects that involves having actuators that allow all six wheels, the front and rear casters and the drive wheels, to articulate independently, which allows us to self-level around all axes, in other words, forwards, backwards, left and right. But it also allows us to adjust the weight on the wheels in order to be able to cross soft terrain or even to have sort of the wheels kind of bogey over curbs. So in other words, lift up and sort of almost float over curbs. So that's, I think, an exciting project. What's going to be interesting is that we're using gyro stabilization, so using a gyroscope inertial measurement unit. The idea is to keep the user stable while the base accommodates the unevenness in the surface, whether that's undulations on a dirt surface or, or changes due to a ramp or a curb cut or a curb, that you basically, as a user, you stay the same. So that's one of our exciting projects. We also just finished licensing one of our robots to a local company, RE2, which is our transfer robot that we call the Strong Arm. And it was a project that we started developing with a National Science Foundation funding in order to build a stronger robotic manipulator that could help wheelchair users to manipulate objects in their environment if they had limited or no use of their upper extremities. There have been some robots that have payloads in the five-pound region, and even the new DARPA robotic arm or the DECA arm, they have payloads at about the 30-pound region. We looked into this with users and caregivers and found that they really were looking for robots that could lift 50 or 60 pounds, but ideally even up to 250 pounds, so they could lift themselves out of the chair. So our strong arm actually mounts to the wheelchair on a track so they can move from the left side to the right side and it can park in the back without increasing the footprint of the wheelchair through what we call direct interaction, essentially by touching the robot, the caregiver touching the robot, it makes the robot follow the pressure or the force applied by the caregiver, which allows them to use the robot to make the person being transferred, so the caregiver to use the robot to make the person being transferred seem like they're weightless, which should do go a long ways towards reducing the forces and the stress that uh, caregivers see when performing assisted transfers which, of course, costs the American society over a billion dollars a year. And now we have a proof of concept. We've worked on a user interface for the clinician. We've managed it to get it working on various wheelchairs, and now we'll be working on the commercialization phase with some NIH money with RE2. Another project that we just launched commercially this year that was really exciting was uh, we had some National Science Foundation funding and some Department of Veterans Affairs funding to address the problem, individuals getting power wheelchairs with power seat functions, so seat elevation, 
leg rest elevation, back rest recline, and seat tilt. And we had done a study that showed that often individuals that get those features, they use them, but they don't use them as directed by the clinician, and so they don't get the full benefit of reducing the risk for pressure ulcers or lymphedema or venous thrombosis or for fatigue management or a number of conditions where they're provided. And so that led us to thinking that maybe we need a more intelligent system. One of the challenges we thought could be that the limited number of hours they get for uh, training with a clinician on the use of the device may not be sufficient for some individuals. And then others simply just may not be intuitive for others on how often they need to use those functions, how they need to use those functions, and how far they may need to tilt or recline or elevate their legs. And so we originally worked with a small industrial computer mounted to the wheelchair, to various wheelchairs, and did a lot of retrofitting. What's exciting is that over this time period, we were able to go from a, an industrial computer to a tablet to a cell phone, showing how fast the computing power grows over a six-year period or about a six- or eight-year period. Now, through working with a company called Permobile out of Nashville, Tennessee, we've worked with them where the sensors are embedded in their chair. The cell phone uses low-power Bluetooth and communicates directly with the controller, and we have software on basically in the form of a phone app which the clinician can work with the consumer to program intelligent reminders. And I say intelligent reminders because what it does is if you've already followed the guidance of the clinician, if you've already tilted or reclined, it won't remind you. It'll record that you are compliant, and it'll wait till the next time around that you need to do those activities. But it also is environmentally aware, contextually aware. So if it hears noise in the background or if you're talking or texting on the phone, then it won't bother you as well, and it'll wait for the next available opportunity. What's also interesting about it, because it's on a phone now, it can upload the data to a website, which can be used for us to aggregate data from all of the users of these systems in order to make improvements in the software and to get a better understanding of how these features of wheelchairs are used which would help us not only developing better interventions, but also developing better wheelchairs. And the user can release this data to clinicians of their choice, which can help the clinicians in guiding their care as they move forward. We did a small-scale clinical trial, and what was amazing is that in this technology increased compliance by about five-fold. We looked at that and extrapolate that out to all power wheelchair users with power seat functions. And the number of dollars currently spent on pressure ulcers, if there was a five-fold decrease in pressure ulcers because of the five-fold increase in compliance, that we would be saving about a billion dollars a year in health care costs. So it certainly pays for itself in terms of the, the benefits derived. It does. And what's the beauty of it is because we, in licensing this product, Working with the manufacturer, the sensors actually nowadays are fairly inexpensive, and since they can be integrated into the design of the chair, the additional cost for producing the chair is very marginal, 
And, of course, most people have a smartphone nowadays. We're really talking about an app, which is replicating the software as extremely inexpensive. And then we've written it in such a way that upgrades can be pushed out either through a Wi-Fi network or through the cellular network. And so people can benefit from future advances as we learn from a larger and larger pool of users. So you're certainly using a host of new technologies to solve some very important and critical problems. And as I listen to you, one of the things that occurs to me is that batteries and battery capacity is certainly a potential issue. What are the main technologies that have permitted you to get to where you are and advance these solutions? I would say the probably the main things that have really helped us are wireless networks, cellular networks, and how ubiquitous they become and the lower cost, wearable technologies, especially smartphones, and lower cost, low power sensors. I think what's probably limiting us at this point are actuators. Uh, They haven't really kept pace with computing and sensing. And the other thing that's really limiting us is power sources. You're well aware there have been advances in batteries, of course. Fortunately, we're not in the days of using lead-acid batteries anymore, but we are still facing significant limitations, even with the lithium-ion and lithium-polymer battery technologies. That especially becomes a problem with our technologies like the Strongarm or the MeBot, where we've had to pay a lot of attention to power management and actually do a lot of work on, on actuator selection and minimization of the number of actuators. So in some ways, we've had to do a trade-off in degrees of freedom for actuator suitability and power source availability. So you mentioned actuators. It immediately comes to mind is that predominant types of actuators that are used in industrial applications are pneumatic and hydraulic. And I presume that you'd prefer not to use either one of those on your systems because of the infrastructure required to support them. Is that correct? Actually, no, that's a great question. So our MeBot actually uses a combination of electric power and pneumatic actuators. In order to get the fast response time, we are using pneumatics. So basically, that's a two-time scale system. So the, the rotary motors for driving and some of the slower operations we can do with the seat functions we would do with electronic actuators. But with the faster functions like self-leveling and terrain following, that we're doing with pneumatic actuators. So you actually have a compressor on the wheelchair? No, actually, we don't have a compressor on the wheelchair. That's a great question. One thing that we have benefited from is the proliferation of pneumatic tanks to the paintball and to um, diving. Now you can get a fairly low cost on the $50 range, high-pressure tanks, like 4,000 or more PSI pounds per square inch in them, in a fairly small container. Now it is back to us managing power again in the regard that we're using up to four, three-and-a-half-liter paintball carbon fiber and pneumatic cylinders right now. And we're using high-pressure air. We could use CO2, which works well but has some of its own challenges associated with it. And we're working to see if we can get like a day's worth of use. Now, the positive side of those is that 
they can be rapidly recharged. And you can get them recharged fairly inexpensively at most sporting goods stores. And now even chargers for high-pressure tanks like that are on the order of about $600. So you could even have one at home or work. So this is a, a fascinating story of combining a whole host of technologies to make a very responsive system to deal with some, some important needs. And I congratulate you and your colleagues for what you've done. So a question that comes to mind is, how do you train people to use these technologies? Do you use advanced training techniques as well? We have graduate programs for our students so that they become specialists in this area, and and many of them are clinicians, so they learn about it. It does also require us, of course, to provide training to the consumer. One way we've certainly tried to tackle that is by attracting consumers into our graduate programs. But the other way is to develop user interfaces where these technologies are largely transparent to the user. They don't see the sophistication. So they're much like your evolution of the car, right? The uh, cars are extremely sophisticated nowadays, but all of that technology is largely transparent to the driver. How do you get the students with disabilities involved in your program? We're fortunate that We've had a long history of recruiting students with disabilities, primarily through high school programs, middle school programs, and then research experiences for undergraduates. And now that we've kind of reached a critical mass, I think we've become known as being a friendly program for students with disabilities. Our current students help recruit future students for us, which I think is a tremendous opportunity. And I think that our alumni out there that are doing well in these areas help when they see students interested in healthcare or in technology that they send them our way. Sounds like a very positive approach. So Dr. Cooper, I appreciate you joining with us today and sharing your pioneering work. And I note that the peer community certainly appreciates and recognizes your work as well. You recently received the Engelberger Award by the International Robotics Society, and I congratulate you for uh, your accomplishments in that regard. No, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Cooper for sharing his pioneering work with us, and I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine who sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again with another podcast, thank you for listening.